Friday morning broadcast, JM and the AM. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of a conference of presidents of major American Jewish organizations. He joins us for the weekly update, fresh back from the state of Israel. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. Couldn't be more fresher back. I just don't know how fresh I am. But. <laughs> he literally just walked in the house, folks. Simple as that. I, and I'm sure you find as time goes on, these trips just get easier and easier, right? Of course. <laughs> yeah. If only that was true. Um, well, Malcolm, tell us about uh, your encounters with and your admiration for Charles Krauthammer, if you would. I had the opportunity to meet uh, Mr. Krauthammer several times um, but and corresponded with him on other occasions. He was brilliant, uh, as you know, very committed to Israel. Uh, grew up in, and, and even went to, I think, Yeshiva Flatbush at one point or other Yeshiva. Um, and uh, his voice was a very important one for us. And uh, people were wondering if he ever appeared on this program, and ironically... The only time he appeared on this program was as co-founder of the Pro Musica Hebraica, an organization dedicated to bringing neglected Jewish music to the concert hall. He was very involved in Jewish music, especially lost pieces. And he also has a very prominent cousin who's a rabbi in Petach Tikva. So he is really even much more connected to our community than people thought. And as you just said, such an effective and important voice. Uh, out there, and he will sorely be missed. There's, there's no question that at some point someone's going to say, boy, we could use his commentary on some issue. So he will certainly be missed. Lot, you, you, you're so right. A lot of news from Israel this week. Not a, um, not a pretty piece of news when we heard that a former minister in the Israeli government was accused of spying for Iran. Can you give us an update? You're just back from Israel. Can you give us an update about Gonen Segev? Yes, he, he did serve in the ministry. There, there has been a cloud over him for some time, and he was living, I think, in he was living in Africa and doing business there in the energy business, uh, uh, and was now accused of passing on information to the Iranians. And uh, as you know, in Israel, this is a, a very serious charge. He was captured trying to leave uh, to go to another uh, African country, Ghana, I think. Um, and uh, was stopped at the airport and deported and will face trial in Israel. Wow. But it's a, it, it, it was shocking to people, I have to tell you, um, more than, um, not because he was such of such repute, but because a minister and talking about transferring information to Iran is really... Uh, well, we get the idea, especially based on current events, we get the idea that, that Israel has, you know, operatives... Uh, certainly around the world, and Iran is obvious because of what we saw with the Prime Minister's revelation about the uh, the nuclear material, etc. Uh, but what about the opposite? Are, are, do, do we feel that there, or do we know that there are, in fact, uh, you know, many rogue Israelis who, you know, are spying for Iran in countries like that? I don't think there are many. I mean, this is such an act of betrayal. Uh, it's it's also true of Americans. You don't see many Americans, but when you do, it becomes such a, a big story. You certainly don't see uh, former members of the cabinet or former um, members of Congress who engage in such activity. And similarly in Israel, you have individuals who sell out their country or sell out the interests, or in his case, he's now protesting that it was really not intended to be espionage. Uh, whatever it is, it's, it, it is not a common occurrence. 
and it's uh, essential that people, you know, that the warning be sounded and people take it into account. And, and you know, when, when somebody of that stature or he, he was in government for a very short period of time um, engages in this activity, it's, it's especially shocking and, and gets a lot of coverage. But remember, it's a, it's a mute, you've been mute. It's a, yeah. it's a small, small minority that ever does these kind of things. We see it in our own country now with the investigations, the ideas that, or the suggestion even that somebody could have, let's say, collaborated with the Russians or collaborated with somebody else against that government or undermining an election or anything of that kind causes, as it should, widespread uh, repugnance and repudiation. Uh, were you told by anybody, or was it reported in the press if it became public, what what type of information he gave to the Iranians? Or there were some reports, but I don't think that any of them are substantive enough right now for us to know. I'm sure more will come out. Hopefully, not too much if it's really secrets. But um, you remember, he was out of government already for a while, so right. it's not clear that he had such pertinent information. Hmm. And speaking of. Uh indictments what about Sarah Netanyahu being charged that she uh, being indicted on the uh, with the charge that she uh, charged a hundred thousand dollars of meals to the state government um, what kind of trouble is she in based on what you saw in Israel um, I actually saw the prime minister I, I was with him when he got the news oh my gosh Yes, but I won't describe that. Oh, my God. Uh, I won't deal with that. I mean, but uh, I will tell you that it is, uh, I heard a lot of expressions of sympathy for them for what they were going through. I mean, you're talking about now the charges are a total of, in American currency, $100,000, and um, supposedly for meals that were ordered when they had a chef there, whatever. It's not. Um, you know, people have not seen the kind of of a serious charge that rouses public indignation. I think people are sick and tired of all the investigations and the charges, and and on all sides of, for those involved and for those who are carrying it out. And the and it is the obligation of an attorney general, if there is corruption, to to point it out. And even though he is an an appointee of Netanyahu and was very close to him and served as his cabinet secretary, it takes a lot of courage to to pursue this and and. But that's his obligation, and, and nobody wants us, uh, to see Israel or any other country, our own country, where corruption or any kind of misuse of, of state funds is tolerated. But on the other hand, you know, does it rise to kind of, um, uh, you know, to, to the publicity? Although I was told that she was offered uh, deals, you know, where they could have made compensation on things and rejected it. So the you know she's also the butt of of endless jokes and endless commentary and as you know I've said many times in an American regard that once you get caught in the late night comics and all of the online um, supposed humor, then it's very hard to get out of it and you know it, it really destroys a person's integrity, their their image, their and even and if she's found not guilty. This this will remain. So it was um, clearly very disturbing to the prime minister. It was very uh, uh, disturbing to others in government. People expected it. It was not a shock. It was no surprise that it was coming because everybody knew it was just a question of what hour. They even knew what day by uh, yesterday, the day before, it would come. And we'll see what the course is. Uh, the real question is what happens now 
regarding the prime minister's investigations, the investigations of the prime minister, I should say, and how that will be handled. And when will that news be revealed? When when are those going to be? Nobody knows. It. You know, first of all, you have multiple cases that are being investigated, and the question is, do any of them rise to seriousness if there's not a charge of, you know, bribery or, or anything of that kind, um, it could, you know, for misjudgment or for questionable things, but not to that level, it will make a big difference. But we don't know yet what the charges are going to be. So unlike Prime Minister Rabin in the 1970s, he will not be resigning, meaning meaning Netanyahu, over the, uh, um, over the um, indictment of his wife. And nor even an indictment of himself, he said, that he would stay. If there's a conviction, he said, it's one thing, but even under indictment, there are those who challenged it. But even remember with Rabin, what was the charge? They had a bank account, I think, right. for $25,000 in right. the United States. Now, again, $25,000 may have been more than, than it is today, but it was certainly not that significant amount of money. And, and they held an account without reporting it, and that could bring down a government. He felt compelled to resign. Times were very different, I guess, then. They were different, and his reaction was different. Now you see that not only in Israel, but elsewhere as well, people are, are resistant to, to what might have been an automatic reaction to any kind of a scandal in the past. Right. And I do believe that people have a right, especially in this age, when people can accuse people, can make wild accusations or even impl- imply things, and ruin people over it. Right. And but I think I, they have a right to defend themselves. But I would, right, but I would also argue that we've seen plenty of cases where when it is a really serious charge, the media pressure becomes too much and they end up resigning. And we could, see, we could cite so many cases just from this area on that. Here, again, because as you indicated, you know, there, there's a degree uh, of, of this case that just is not as serious as other charges. So I think he can get away with... Uh, you know, even if it does, um, if they end up indicting him, I think he kind of get away with uh, not resigning. And then, uh, if the process proceeds, and in fact does, um, if there's a conviction or anything of that kind, I, and I, we don't know what he'll actually do if there is a, a, an indictment. But he has made clear that till now that he wouldn't resign. And there are questions about what Israeli law requires. I mean, we've heard different interpretations, but I don't think he would have said that if he wasn't confident that that, that would be allowed. And isn't it amazing that my entire theory is based on how the media treats them? It's all based on that. If the media decides to apply pressure that's, that's just, you know, insurmountable, then government leaders, as again, as we've seen, will have no choice. But there's not. They won't be able to, to resist. They won't be able to, to deal with the pressure. You're really talking about public opinion much more than you are talking about just about the media. It's the combination because public opinion is shaped by the, by the media to a large degree. And it's the information that people get that determines how they will view things. And as you know, in Israel, we have a, there is a media that is very... Um, anti-Netanyahu, very limited media that is pro-Netanyahu. And uh, there is also, you know, the fatigue. There's a lot of things that when a prime minister has been in office as long as he has, but you still don't see anybody emerging. And now with the, there will be some shift in labor as a result of the Jewish agency, um, the likely election of of, uh, Bushy Herzog to be the chairman of the Jewish agency and opening up a uh, position there. And will they bring Benny Gantz in, the former uh, chief of the IDF? Uh, General Benny Gantz has been rumored to be uh, uh, in negotiations with labor. And the chairman of labor said that he that they would let him 
uh, step in and be the leader of the Labour Party. And if he wins, then he'd be prime minister. If he loses, he would step out and uh, Gabay would go back in. No, so it's now, part of the Byzantine-Israeli politics so that nobody now, understands completely. No, but, but, but now I understand it better. When I first heard that Herzog was getting this appointment, so I said to myself, oh, brilliant Netanyahu move. You know, he's taking him and, and you know, basically tossing him out of the government, one of his key rivals. And then when I read that Netanyahu was against the choice, I was I was scratching my head. Why? You've just told me why. Because because he'd rather him be in and one of, his, and one of the greater rivals get the job. Am I right? Yes, to a degree, but it's it's far more complicated, and that's why I talked about, you know, the bizarro political system. The Jewish agency is actually, and was in the past, a very important body. It was an alternative government. Right. You know that the chairman of the Jewish agency in official governmental protocol comes after the president and prime minister wow. as the third important leader of Israel, before yeah. even the speaker of the Knesset. And the, the you know the agency had a big budget. It's it's been pared down over the years, and you have the division between the WZO and the Jewish agency. I know none of your listeners understand anything that I'm saying because I don't understand it either. Right, you can't blame them, right? <laughs> right, and then and I live with it. I've been part of it for all the years. I tell them all the time I don't understand anything. People call me about you know the candidates all called me and. I said, thank God we're not part of the process. I don't have to vote. Uh, I think there were very good candidates this time. The prime minister, as you know, put forward uh, Minister Steinitz, uh, as minister, minister of Energy now, long-term, uh, well, former leftist who became a rightist and, and joined Likud and has been a long-term time associate of, of the prime minister. He was pushing him. Usually the prime minister's recommendation gets accepted. Now they, they've changed the rules somewhat. There's a committee, but I think the majority of the committee are people from the diaspora. And uh, they turned down the prime minister's nominee by a pretty overwhelming vote in favor of Herzog. Some of the other candidates were former ambassador Ron Prosor, who many of your listeners sure. know, it was ambassador UN, very popular, articulate guy, Nachman Shai, hmm. uh, who's been a member of Knesset for that, uh, associated with American Jewish organizations, and also very articulate, capable guy. Um, I, I mean, there were many in that ilk who were. Uh, serious candidates and you know, had hearings, uh, you know, were interviewed, and various reasons why this one or that one wasn't accepted. But the, um, but clearly, prime minister's candidate usually in the past would emerge as the as accepted. Even Sharansky had a fight when he was nominated uh, a number yeah, of years ago. I remember that, right. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, on the web, and com. On the Nachum Siegel Network, and of course, the beloved NSN app. Reminder, we're in the final two days today and next Friday of our spring fundraiser. If you like what we present each day and each week here at JM and the AM, go to fjbunity.org, Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting, fjbunity.org, and give as generously as possible. You know, before we get to some of the really pressing news of the day, which I will in a moment, I just got to bring up, because you mentioned meddling in elections as an aside earlier, uh, Mayor Weingarten on the Israel show earlier this week played the recordings of the um, of the interview that was done with Bill Clinton. Now, my theory is it didn't get the worldwide attention it should because it was during the week of Pesach. But 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 the truth is that it may not have gotten the uh, the international attention that it should simply because it was Bill Clinton. And there are many people out there who hesitate to to criticize him. I mean, he had audio on this show of him one hundred percent admitting 
that he had a preference in the Netanyahu Paris election, 1996, and that he and others in his administration did what they could to, to quote-unquote guarantee or work toward a Paris victory. And it's amazing that with all this stuff going on over the last so many months about election meddling, that people don't, don't, don't realize that our own president of the United States in the 90s was doing this and admitting to it. It is, um, you know, it, I know that people were, were taken aback by the report. I read some accounts of it. Uh, but I, I have to tell you, we at that time knew a lot of it, not the degree to which perhaps they were meddling, but they certainly made their preferences clear. We knew about the tensions between Clinton and Netanyahu and uh, the reasons why he would have wanted to uh, try to influence the outcome. I don't believe that uh, there's any evidence that, that, in fact, American meddling in that or other elections uh, actually impacted the outcome. In some cases, I know experts who have told me that they believe it has the reverse effect. Hmm. Israelis don't like... They don't like to be told what to do, huh? Right. <laughs> we know th- I'm a surprise to you. <laughs> we, know th- we know that from our tradition. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know that that's not the point, obviously. Whether it had an effect or not is secondary. The primary thing is that, that, the, pro- that the President of the United States not only you know, expressed a, uh, you know, a, a preference, but really set up people to, to work with Israel, to work with the Paris campaign, to, to get elected, to do what was necessary to get elected. It was, the whole thing is outrageous. I think, that, I think what really got us, uh, led by Mayer in this case, was simply that it didn't get the attention of CNN, Fox News, and others. Like, it, it didn't even make, if you Google it, you'll find it in a bunch of Israeli websites, and that's about it. I, I, just looked, I don't think people, honestly, I don't think most people in the media who knew what was going on are that surprised. I know Nahum, it's, it's, um, yeah, but disturbing su- and all that, but. But surprise is not the issue. It's, it's one of the biggest What's issues. What's surprising is that he would say it so blatantly. Right. And, and acknowledge it. And not think of consequences because he, I think they just accepted that it was something they did and, and I don't even know how much they, well, they didn't go public with it, but. Um, so we've it, had other presidents who have helped uh, or try to help certain candidates in Israel, sending advisors or encouraging people to go and help them. Hmm. All right. I always think that if today's administration would bring up a story like this, maybe it would have some impact because, you know, obviously the question of election meddling is so central right now. Very essential. I agree with you. To so many stories that we read. No, I'm glad that it gets out that people understand what is happening and sometimes why we react to things that they don't understand why, but because we know or heard that some things were going on pro one side or pro the other. All right, understood. All right, the United States has officially left the Human Rights Council of the UN. Is it official? It is official. That's pretty amazing. Or tell us, maybe, maybe you know, to a layman like me, it seems amazing. You're on the inside. Is it in fact amazing, or it's not that big of a deal? I do think it's a big deal. I think that it's um, uh, uh, long overdue. Not in terms of the United States, but the response to the lies and the promises that were not kept about about reforming the um, the Human Rights Council. The United States gave them one warning after another. So it was not an abrupt move that some try to portray it in the media. There was not a, you know, some decision all of a sudden to do this. Uh, she has said it constantly, and we see that the pattern continues, not just there in every part of the UN. You know, they voted 120 to 8 with, you know, 50 or some uh, 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 people who abstained, uh, countries who abstained, but 128 
about Israel defending its border in Gaza. I mean, there's, there's nothing more black and white about it, and w- with no condemnation of Hamas, and the American effort to get it condemned didn't get the sufficient majority for it. And uh, so this move, I mean, if one, as you know, I've discussed it many years and many times on this program, talking about, you know, the condemnations of Israel being greater than the number against almost all the other countries combined, Iran, Syria, et cetera, that uh, the the uh, complete hijacking of these agencies whose goals, initiate, initial goals, were very lofty and things we supported. We want a meaningful human rights council that will go after the real violators against the rights of Christians, Muslims, Jews, others. But they don't even do that effectively because they won't challenge the governments that are doing it, doing, engaged in this activity. And the the United States finally said enough is enough. They're the only country to which to which the Human Rights Council devotes a specific item on the agenda. <laughs> I mean, all the other countries are like lumped together in one. Israel has its own item on the agenda, and that a series of resolutions and challenges to Israel's activities, everything that Israel, you know, does, and and it's an annual thing. It's not just that one time this happened. And as you know, Nikki Haley a year ago tried to to get it to be changed and. Right. And I have to say that there were previous administrations that that tried. I think George Bush suspended uh, the membership in the in the Human Rights Council of the United States for a couple of years, and people criticized him. And we see that it's a corrupt body, fulfilling virtually no purpose, a positive purpose anymore. Not condemning those who really engage in human rights violations, in most extreme cases. And essentially, isn't just another UN body focused on Israel. Now, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, and I don't know, I don't know the answer. But has the Human Rights Council been there since the founding of the UN? Like, is it or is it an invention from ten, twenty years ago? Like, how? What kind of history does it have? No, it's very long history. It was established. I mean, it was one of the primary purposes of the United Nations when it was established. It did go through some reforms, and if you remember, the Obama administration, and others made reference to it and said, you know, stay in because if you're out, then you lose a voice and a platform. Right, has some validity. I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, uh, but they, it went through reforms, and what came out was worse than what we had before. Right. All right, so now let me prepare you for what's going to happen after Shachris tomorrow, because someone's going to walk over to you in shul and say just that. Malcolm, wouldn't it be better if the U.S. is there to defend Israel and the Human Rights Council and to leave in this, uh, you know, in this cloud of dust? And the answer is? No, because we've given them warning after warning without the presence of the United States. It loses legitimacy, you know, regardless of what People may agree or disagree. The presence of the United States is essential for the validity of organizations and pulling our funding from agencies, pulling our support really matters. And I think that, that this it demeans the body and it puts the pressure on the others and the Europeans and others to say, how do you justify your staying there? Let's see how they justify it, if they're going to change their votes, if they're going to see a different Human Rights Council. My bet is you, you can't change it. Uh, what was the um, uh, what was the um, report from the meeting of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and King Abdullah uh, this week? Any substance to that? So, uh, as I said, I had many meetings during the week with people, and this was one of the issues. Obviously, the situation of Jordan is very delicate. It's very critical to Israel. You know, this is a buffer between Iraq and Iran with Israel's um, border. The, um, the situation inside the country is economically very poor, in addition to the fact that they've absorbed or host 
um, refugees from Syria, still from the war in Iraq, who stayed, I mean, a huge numbers, which puts an economic strain on the country. Then they have the threats on their borders, uh, ISIS and others who, who and Iran, who will want to penetrate. The, the Muslim Brotherhood is very active there, and there have been demonstrations ongoing almost consistently. There have been two prime ministers in the last couple of months, and still the situation hasn't stabilized. The Arab countries um, do not pay enough attention and are not happy with the, some things that the king did regarding participating in Yemen, other things, but they put up a fund of two and a half billion dollars. Uh, I understand that only about $50 million or so has gone from Saudi Arabia to Jordan. A lot of the money was meant to be put on deposit with the World Bank to guarantee loans to Jordan, also to the Jordanian Central Bank in order to stabilize it and increase its ability to to, uh, print and and borrow money. Um, And for some other projects, but not money going specifically to the government. The king is is very upset. The king is obviously worried about his situation, and as you know, Israel does a lot to enhance Israel secure uh, the security of Jordan because it does impact Israel's security. Right. And the the um, you know it, 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 Jordan has no natural resources. Doesn't have. Um, basis for an economy like oil or tourism, they're trying to build those things up. And Israel's help, they're trying to do joint projects near the, the Dead Sea and uh, other things, uh, helping improve agriculture, um, maybe these massive projects they're talking about near uh, Aqaba and on the Saudi side and the Jordanian side. But the fact is that still you don't have, um, you know, high-tech industry. You don't have other things, even though in the past there were qualified industrial zones, joint production, Israeli companies producing Jordan came to hostile, whatever. And you still have a problem with the population, you know, in terms of accepting Israel. And then every once in a while there's some source of tension, you know, the shooting at the embassy, some other thing that comes up that sets it back. And the Muslim Brotherhood people and others are there to, to exploit it. Of course, they would like to topple the king. They they would like to topple everybody who doesn't follow their line. And you have the Iranians playing mischief because they want to see Shiite governments and and or governments oriented towards them. The Turks and Erdogan is active in many places. By the way, both of them very active in um, Jordan and Turkey and Saudi Arabia in Jerusalem, helping to buy property, giving money and grants. Um, but. For Jordan, the question is, is there a way to stabilize it? How would, um, can Israel, maybe in some confederation, it might be a solution for the Palestinian problem. Others are all examining these issues, as we've done for, uh, I've been involved with studies in, in efforts like that for 30 years. So far, there's no solution, and Jordan is uh, is in, in dire circumstance. Wow, but you've reminded us how important it is for Israel to have a strong or at least stable Jordan, or at least... Critical. Look at the side. Just look at a map and look at the border, how yeah. long the border is, and what it would mean if, if, if Jordan were to be taken over, it gives Iran direct access to the West Bank. Right. I just never realized to what degree Iran or the Muslim Brotherhood could, could immediately have access uh, to, leaders, mm-hmm. to the leadership role in Jordan. Uh, well, it's hard. It's, it's Iran hard. is taking over in Iraq. Yeah. So if they have the Iraq is on the border of Jordan, they just go right through. It's hard for Israel to prop up a neighbor. Like there's only a limited amount of influence Israel could have when trying to do that. Well, first of all, in the 
security front, Israel does a lot to protect the border on Syria, the Jordanian border in Syria, when it makes demands about, you know, trying to to stop the the presence of the Iranians, the growing presence of their militia and others, Hezbollah on the border. They threaten Jordan's border too, so it's contiguous with Israel. So you, the, there, Israel, of course, tries to make sure and do what it can to protect that as well. And Jordanian forces um, are there, but remember, you got to if you have a million Syrian refugees. That's very hard to know who's who's a spy, who's a refugee. The king's um, intelligence forces, uh, army are very uh, generally very competent, but this is a, an overwhelming challenge for them and, and everyone. All right, I'm, 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 I continue to be intrigued by these regular conversations. It seems between Netanyahu and Putin, and uh, I don't know what you know you discussed with the prime minister this week, but. Uh, again, how substantive are, are these discussions? It seems to it seems based on our conversations, me and you, and I bring this up, that basically Putin continues to do what he wants to do in Syria, and Netanyahu makes it clear that they are there in case something happens that they don't approve of. Is that essentially the, how the conversation goes between the two of them? Well, I think the message, again, each time the prime minister is there is to re- reiterate the red lines um, and what Israel can't accept and and. And, and I don't think Putin wants that either. He doesn't want to see Iran emerge powerful in all this. He wants to see Assad stay in power. And for the reason that we've discussed many times, yeah. that there's really no alternative in that these you know, you're not going to have free democratic elections in countries like this, right. at least not for the foreseeable future. So he wants to have stability. He wants to assure their hegemony, the Russian presence. You know, his maximum presence there was a small number of troops and 70 planes, uh, and most of the time even a smaller number of uh, planes and a couple billion dollars investment, and he sold probably more in weapons to them than uh, what he put forward. So uh, he, he has, on a very minimal uh, budget has asserted himself as a critical player, and I think Netanyahu recognizing that, and the Israeli government. So f- it's critical that Russia not fire off anti-aircraft when Israeli planes fly over, that they understand that they can't hit Russian targets, so they coordinate. There are hotlines of all kinds to to assure that that is the case. And he, his meetings with, with Putin are to to bolster and to reinforce that Israel cannot accept the growing presence of the militia, and we heard that the militias, uh, maybe the 10,000, other estimates go to 50,000, 80,000, um, but uh, even at 10,000 of them and, and, I don't know, seven, 8,000 Hezbollah guys, that they were putting on the Syrian army uniforms to be able to stay there because they were all banned, Iranian militia are not supposed to be near Israel's borders. So they were putting on uh, Syrian military uniforms in order to cover their presence near Dara and other areas, and they want to be within striking distance, quick striking distance of the Israel border. Hmm. Israel sent them all back with those incredible attacks that, again, I think people don't appreciate, both there and in Gaza. And I reiterate that there were 50-plus attacks and you haven't heard of one civilian casualty, no collateral damage. It's so amazing. I don't know how people, uh, your listeners, ours, at the world doesn't say what? 50 bombings and attacks against military targets and done so precisely that you don't have civilian casualties. And they hit again, as you know, with 30 more attacks in response to rockets that are being fired. And these, and again, I, I just want people to understand, don't dismiss these kites and balloons. They're doing immense amount of damage. 
and Israel has to do what it must do to stop this, meaning take out the leaders and the people organizing this. Uh, you know, there were countries that had sent as a, as a gesture to the children in Gaza, these kites, or, and oh, some are now finding out that they're being used as, as weapons. I mean, uh, this is, these are toys for terror. Unbelievable. Uh, and one of the articles I saw... Remember that, that phrase. That's a good one. Do you like that Toys for Terror, huh? I guess I thought of it yesterday. I'm going to use it. <laughs> and I was, about to go, I was about to go copyright it until you, until you reacted. Um, and on top of that, I saw that Israel... I mean, not, not that this is such a, such a positive, uh, but they've developed a method using drones to pinpoint where these fires are and get the firefighters to those spots even quicker than usual. So leave it to Israel to, even in the face of terror and the toys for terror, as you say, leave it to them to figure out a way to deal with it in even better fashion. And they affix blades, uh, like razor blades, to them so they can cut the strings or the balloons uh, before they hit Israeli territory. Wow, unbelievable. But you also have to think of the children who found these balloons, many of them, and thank God, people you know caught in time and stuff. But, you know, they land, and they're using... Uh, hot charcoal. So everybody who's done a barbecue knows you get a charcoal, you know, red hot, and you send it over, and when it touches the ground, it sets fire to it. Unbelievable. The enemy is so clever sometimes. Uh, a couple of trips to Israel to note. Ringo Starr is there. Um, believe it or not, all these years later after the Beatles were banned, were banned from Israel. So thank God there are entertainers in Hollywood who continue to um, travel to Israel and perform there in the uh, face of, of the BDS movement. And this Prince William visit, which is coming up this week, so apparently his trip to Yerushalayim is being classified as a trip to occupied Palestinian territories. What do you think? You know that the British Foreign Service is, you know, how qualified they are in dealing with world affairs. But, um, uh, you know, if they had been more, they would have still had the empire. <laughs> Very good. Be, Very good. It would be, um, I mean, it's so typical of of, uh, of them and, and trying to label to deny. You know, his grandmother is buried, uh, buried there. His great-grandmother uh, is buried there, and I... In the discussion with Prince Charles, his father at the Paris funeral told him about the grandmother's grave, and as a result, he told his aides, "I want to go there now." And he asked me, "Can I see it from there?" And of course, he couldn't. And uh, but I told him it's right nearby. I told him I just visited there; that it's safe to go up there now, which is what he asked me, because uh, it's in Harazetim. She's buried on the Mount of Olives in a Christian uh, sector there, and he went. And of course, Ten Downing Street went. Crazy, thank God they did not know who told them to go. And, uh, <laughs> and I'd be banned. Well, too. now they know. <laughs> so now that the prince wants to go, just shut up about it. Do it. Nobody, nobody cares how you classify it. Just let him go visit his grandmother's grave. Why shouldn't he visit the hotel? I mean, these are are world class um, uh, historical monuments. If you know, if you don't believe they're religious monuments, which he does, I think. And the, it, it is typical of what the U.N. does, of what the, the British Foreign Service, that they, they are so concerned about the reaction. Just look when the president went. He goes and puts on the Amica, goes to the Kotel, declares it a Jewish holy place, the Temple Mount, and not one demonstration anywhere in the Arab world. And look at the response still to the embassy. No demonstrations. Now, I'm not saying everybody loves it or everybody accepts it, but if the, if the Prince and sensitive and goes and he's just as a, he's going as a tourist to visit these places. They shouldn't make such a big deal and they should recognize 
that the the, uh, the Jewish nature thinks he doesn't have to recognize Israeli sovereignty. It's not it's not his business. It's not the purpose of his trip. But now they make a challenge to it. Right. There was no reason to say or mention occupied Palestinian territories. Uh, finally, Malcolm, uh, what was the reaction in Iran among its citizens to Prime Minister Netanyahu's offer regarding water that we discussed last week? Well, the Prime Minister's people are justifiably proud of the reaction to it. And they uh, they had tens and thousands of hits on the Iranian website that they created. In fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands almost immediately and expressions of appreciation and people uh, p- uh, posting, uh, we love Israel. <laughs> and this in on a Farsi language website that the government has, the uh, the army has, others have. And the prime minister simply said, poured himself a glass of water, which some thought was not necessary, but um, spoke to the Iranian people and said, look, we will help you. We will help your farmers. The country is in such a severe drought. Half the country today is in a severe drought, and they're moving into the cities. Millions of people are on the move and will be on the move because they can't, they can't live. They don't have water. And the, so the Israel is showing, and I think smartly, saying to the Iranian people, look, all that we're doing is not against you. It's against an evil regime that takes away your rights. And here we are even offering the lifeline uh, for, for anybody, any country, which is water, and they're rejecting it. Yeah. Unbelievable. And I think that that video now, according to what I saw on the Daily Alert, is up to 5 million views, which is right. pretty amazing. Um, well, uh, my one of my takeaways from today's conversation, does media opinion shape public opinion or does public opinion shape media opinion? Boy, we could discuss that for a few hours, I would think. Um, I thank you very much for joining us. We will continue uh, next week, please, God, and have a wonderful Shabbos. Have a great Shabbos. It's good to talk to you. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major, American Jew- of Major American Jewish Organizations. Does media shape public opinion? As Malcolm, uh, or does public, no, no, Malcolm said the opposite. Or does public opinion shape the media? Hmm. See, I'm of the, I'm of the former opinion. Media shapes public opinion. Malcolm seemed to indicate that public opinion has a major role in what the media then reports and demands of its, you know, leaders, et cetera, et cetera. I.e. the media pressure when it comes to getting a public official to resign. Hmm. I'm going to think about this one for a while.